So we live in a world where virtue signaling has become a common thing. Uh, virtue signaling means an attempt to show others that you are a good person by expressing opinions that are acceptable to them, all the while usually accompanied by inaction. Uh, we see this on social media all the time. We see people who claim to be hardcore environmentalists, and yet they have private jets that put out more emissions than the common man could ever put out. Uh, we see this when people speak out against racism and yet still hold contempt to a different race of people. Uh, sadly, most people are not who they say that they are. Uh, R. Kent Hughes stated this, all humans find it difficult to live up to what we espouse intellectually. Uh, it, it's common for people to have their issues they like to talk about. They've got their hobby horses. They've got their issues that they like to talk about. Yet it's also common that those same people that like to talk about these certain issues oftentimes aren't practicing what they're preaching. And Jesus calls this out today. As we see this interchange, we need to ask ourselves, are we guilty of virtue signaling? Do we practice what we preach? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so excited to get into your word today. Thank you for the opportunity to study it. Thank you for your opportunity to preach it, Lord. I am a sinful man. I do not deserve to preach your word, but God, you've chosen to use men uh, to, to preach your word. Uh, despite our inadequacies, God, your word overcomes those. And so God, may, may the words that I say, may the meditations of my heart, may the things that we do here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you and hold us holy uh, part, worship unto you alone. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about you and your glory. And so may you change us from the inside out. As Brother Adams already preached, may you help us to cast off all the other things that entangle us. Uh, Lord, as your word talks about running the race as one and un unhindered by the things of this world, not being entangled by the cares of this world, may we run toward you, not being entangled by the things of this world. And may we learn your word, but not being entangled by the things of this world as well. We love you, praise you, and thank you. Amen. Today we're going to see two important aspects of following and obeying Christ. And the first is, you should follow the greatest commandments. You should follow the greatest commandments. We're going to kind of gradually go through the scripture. We're in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there, starting at verse 25. I'm going to go ahead and just read that first verse there. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, meaning Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're introduced to this lawyer who has an agenda. And this isn't the lawyer like we think today that's a secular law. This wasn't a Roman lawyer. This was a lawyer who specialized in the Mosaic law, uh, in, in the first five books of the Bible, the, the Torah. He was an expert in the law. And we're told this man sought to put Jesus to the test. And if you're trying to pick a guy to go after Jesus, this is the guy you'd pick. He's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. And I mean, lawyers are good at debating. I mean, that's kind of their thing. And so, okay, we'll send this guy out. He should be a good, uh, if anyone could trip up Jesus, this guy should be it. However, this poor chap doesn't know what he's getting into, does he? He's, he's not going after just anybody. He's actually going after God incarnate and putting him to the test. Can this man adept and proficient in the law? He may be adept in the law, but how can he argue with the author of the law? Uh, you may be adept in something, but how can you argue with the author of that thing? And I'm sure we can already see that this is not going to turn out to be really good for this guy. It's not going to go as well as he had hoped. So this lawyer asks a difficult question. What 
can I do or what shall I do to inherit eternal life? By eternal life, he's asking, how can I avoid judgment? How can I avoid the judgment to come? How can I be saved? And this is a common question we see come up in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, 37, and also in 1630. We see it multiple times. People want to know how they can be saved from the wrath to come, from the judgment. And he calls Jesus teacher here, and he obviously doesn't recognize Jesus as Lord. He, and by teacher, he actually means false teacher. He's trying to disprove Jesus at this point. And so here is what Jesus responds back in verse 26 and 27. He again, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, the law you answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, like usually, uh, he does this all the time. He challenges the man's question with what? A question. He hits the motive of this man's heart. This man's not really asking that question to get the answer from Jesus. He's trying to trip Jesus up. He's putting him to a test. And we're, we're told that Jesus asked the man how he reads the law. And in essence, he's saying, how do you recite the law? And, and that's a way of saying, referring to this twice daily profession that all faithful Jews did in this time. They would recite the Shema. And the, and the, and the Shema with that at the end, that's how they said it. Um, it, it. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. And the expert of the law answers a beautiful answer and the correct answer, which is really convicting to us as we watch this interchange. This man knows the right answers, he, but he's virtue signaling. He, he knows the right answers, but he doesn't practice them. And I think sometimes we in the church, we can know the right answer, but do we do the right thing? Uh, we may know we're not supposed to do this. We're supposed to think this way. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. but do we really do that? And I want us to really think about that as we watch this interchange. And this man, he answers in a very beautiful way. In summary of the law, we see that we should love God with all of our being. This first part here, we should love the Lord, with our God, with all of our heart, meaning emotions and motivation. The, like your, your heart is, you know, say, hey, they have a big heart for that. It, it spurs them to action. Our, our soul, we should love him with our eternal self. That's the part that doesn't pass away. It lives forever. Our, our strength, our energy, our physical ability, we need to love the Lord with our bodies, with our energy and strength. And finally, our mind, our consciousness, what learns, how we read the word. We love the, love the Lord by reading his word and memorizing his word and knowing his word, and we show God our love by doing that. God requires that we give him all of ourselves, our motivation, energy, consciousness, and eternal being should all be dedicated to him. And this man also says the second greatest commandment that Jesus spells out in, in Matthew twenty two thirty nine as well. He says that we should love one's neighbor as oneself. And we're going to expose into that as we get into the, the Good Samaritan uh, parable that we're about to get into in a moment. But I want to take a quick note and the violence that's been done to this scripture and that second greatest commandment. I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors preach we should love ourselves. Man, oh, it just, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard when I hear that. It's, it's oh, we're, we know we should love ourselves so that we can love others. And no, no, this is not talking about loving people like you love yourself. Love people instead of loving yourself. Love God instead of loving yourself. Because my friends, people are lovers of themselves, naturally. And you're like, well, what about that person that's depressed? Or that person? No, no, no. That's self-love. It's still self-love. Self-depreciating ideas and, you know, depression, anxiety, all that, it's still focused on here. I don't mean to beat people down that struggle with those things, but we need to call it what it is. It's sin. It's still self-focus. 
It's still all about me and I, how I feel and, and what, how that makes me feel and how this, those things are still inwardly focused. So the problem is not that we need to love ourselves more. Now, people love themselves. Even if they have bad thoughts about themselves, they still are focused on themselves. They're still showing love to themselves. What we need to do is love God more than we love ourselves and how we feel. We need to be more focused on his will and how he feels about things and not how we feel about things. We need to be more focused on how other people are instead of ourselves. And so true, the true teaching here is not self-love. No, no, we're, we're not lovable in ourselves. We are sinners, but God is, is perfect. And so we can love him instead of ourselves and in place of ourselves. We will care for ourselves. That's not a problem people usually have. It's more of loving God first and others second. Only then can we see ourselves in the correct light. We are primarily servants of God and secondarily servants of others. So what is Jesus' response to this man's correct answer to his theological question? And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And, you know, it sounds like, oh, this is a peaceful answer. The lawyer's going to go about his way. It's been a successful interchange for him. They both come out okay. But what we miss in this is that do this and you will live. That do this is continually doing. It means that you're perfect. It means that you always love the Lord with every part of yourself. It means that you always love your neighbor with every part of yourself. And so this is a really heavy answer. And we miss that in the English sometimes. This is really heavy. And we can see in a moment that this expert of the law was truly virtue signaling. He did, he wanted, and Jesus wanted the man to feel the whole weight of that law and say, okay, yeah, if you keep it all, you'll have eternal life. You keep every single dot of the law. You love God with everything. Don't sin against him. You love your neighbors yourself. Then yeah, your righteousness will get you to heaven. Obviously, we know that's a weight that none of us can bear. Praise the Lord. Jesus didn't leave us there because we can't either. But the law is still perfect. We were talking about that during growth group, our Sunday school before church. There's no problem with the law. The problem with us, we're broken. The, the law, it wasn't that the law had any deficiencies. It was the people have deficiencies, and we can't keep it. And the law was meant to be a schoolmaster, to let us know you're not perfect. You are fallen. Things are wrong. And we're to feel that weight even today so that we turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, not ourselves. But who can keep the law of God perfectly anyway? Even those who are amazingly rigorous will still fall at times. James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, would go on to write a really hopeless statement for those who thought they could be perfected by the law. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one single point, has become guilty of all of it. And obviously, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we don't only fall from one point. We fall multiple points every day. So you add that up. We're not anywhere near just one. What a weight there is here. Who can stand under such a terrible weight? And we'll see how this man responds, this heavy weight that's been laid upon his shoulders, which brings us to our second point today. You should follow the greatest commander. So let's get into verse 29. You should follow the greatest commander. The man answers back with the following in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor. Well, first off, I want us to see here that this man in his self-righteousness thinks that he actually loves God with all of himself. So he, he gets to the neighbor part because he thinks he's doing the first part pretty well, which just shows his blindness to his own sin already. Do we really love God with every part of us? I uh, doubt it. 
But he's dead set on justifying himself. He refuses to be humbled and bow down in repentance and faith and say, I am unworthy. I am not righteous. Instead, he turns to his good old friend, legalism. Don't you love legalism? Let's just, he's a lawyer, and so legalism's kind of his specialty. Let's, let's try to figure out how I can weasel around this, and let's, let's look at definitions of words. There's a president that did that once. What's the definition of that really mean? You know, I mean, that's how we work, isn't it? It's like, oh, well, is that really what God meant when he said that? We see that that's been the sin since the garden, as the, as the serpent says. Did God really say that? That's our way of, we've just followed right after our father, the devil, who's been sinning since the beginning. That's our natural human flesh, is to just want to go, is that really what it is? Is it really a sin to look at that? Is it really a sin to, to not tithe? Is it really a sin to not attend church or be a part of a fellowship? Is it really sin to watch that movie. I know it's got this scene and it's really got, I know, is it really a sin to listen to that music? I know it's got those lyrics, but, but there's redeem, there's a redeeming part. There's this good part, this one part in the chorus. It sounds really good and it's congruent with Christianity. You know, aren't we good at that? Just rationalizing. Did God really say I couldn't listen to that or go to that or do this? No, it's not. The question is not, can we, what can we get away with? The question is how holy can we be? Not in a legalistic, self-righteous standpoint, but you have been bought with a price. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and you don't need to be thinking, how can I wallow in the, in the mire and the mud and, and, and be able to wash it off all the time and live like everybody else? No, we need to be thinking, oh, wow, every single sin was a, a nail in his wrist. It, it led to his crucifixion, and the wrath of God was placed upon him. That's not where we need to be. And the man says, and who is my neighbor? In essence, he's asking, just how far do I have to love people? Right? I mean, what about blasphemers? You want me to love them? They blaspheme you. You know, for us today, what about dictators? We shouldn't love President Z. You know, what about Kim Jong-un? You know, we, we, we have to love them. Jesus says, love your enemies. He's, he's true, true about that. You can't possibly, right? I mean, Jesus, you can't mean all of my neighbors, really, like every single person. He wants to justify himself for not loving certain people. Oh, how man likes to justify himself, as we've already said. Uh, we, we, our flesh wants to let others know what we bring to the table. We want to justify ourselves, but yet we have no power, no power to justify ourselves before a righteous and holy God. We are guilty criminals apart from Christ in front of a righteous and just judge. We have no hope of representing ourselves before the judgment seat of Christ in and of ourselves. We bring nothing to the table. God stands ready to pronounce the sentence of death and hell, and that is where we will go if we do not, or we're not in Christ. We're not a new creation. And if we try to justify ourselves like this man is doing right now, we will be sadly disappointed in the outcome. There will be no, well done, good, a faithful servant. It will be, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of unrighteousness. And hell is an eternal, real place. Brothers and sisters, we are only justified by the payment of Christ on the cross. It's the only hope that we have. We can be justified or declared righteous not because of our own intrinsic worth, our, our intellectual assent, our abilities, our inherent righteousness, or our good heart, as a lot of people say. Well, they have a good heart. It's like, no, if they're not a Christian, they have a terrible heart that's been on rebellion that is destined for hell. That's where their heart is. I don't care if they do something good. That's God's common grace. That's their nice personality that God was kind enough to give them, but they are not good. We can only be declared righteous because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. When we quit trying to justify ourselves and we humbly admit that we are a sinner, that we, when we confess our sins, 
We repent of our sins and say, God, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go your way. I'm sorry for my sins. I turn from them and put our faith in Christ alone for faith. The Bible teaches that Christ's righteousness is imputed upon us. That means it's placed upon us so that when the Father looks at us as a born-again believer, those who have been saved and justified by Jesus Christ, he sees his son. That's why you can say, well done, good and faithful servant when you die. It's not because you actually are good at all. You're not. You have no righteousness. Isaiah tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags, that our sins are as scarlet, but he's washed them white as snow. His righteousness has been imputed upon us. That's a great word to remember, imputation of righteousness. The Catholic Church teaches that that righteousness is not imputed upon us, that we get some righteousness, but we have to work for our salvation. The Bible is clear that no, we cannot work for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no man can boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And there's no more beautiful verse about imputation of righteousness than 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I love this here. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, the perfect Son of God, is who we're talking about, Jesus Christ, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We might become that. So when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ paid on our behalf. How amazing is that? Christ became the curse for us. He took our punishment on the cross and took the wrath of God upon himself. You know, we see the crucifixion, and it's, it's gory. It's awful when we think about how terrible it would have been to hang on that cross and die that awful, murderous death after 41, 40 minus 1 lashings. But the wrath of the Father, the punishment that we deserved was placed upon the Son. He took our punishment so that we might be declared righteous. I pray that everyone here has been born again, as John 3 says, as Jesus talks about. There's no more important thing in your life, no more important decision than putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and being declared righteous through his work on the cross. Well, since this lawyer's refused to humble himself before Christ, Christ is going to do some humbling for him through a parable. And that's where we get into some of the meat of our, our uh, message today. So let's look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So our first character in this parable is just called a man. He's a man. It's often assumed that he is a Jew. He probably was a Jew we're kind of looking at this. He's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, and we're giving this idea that he's going down because everywhere you go from Jerusalem is down. Uh, in fact, if you look at the map that we have here, uh, Jericho is around 18 miles. Uh, I think it's east, yeah, east-northeast. So if we're looking here, there's Jerusalem. Jericho is the one in red there. Uh, and you're looking at there. What you don't see here is that there is a 3,300-foot decline over those 18 miles walking downhill. Now, going the other way would be a lot worse, <laughs> you know, but, but this is still a, a, a pretty crazy descent, so that's why it says going down to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem, and because of this difficult uh, wilderness-like terrain, there's some desert there, there's some wilderness, obviously. Um, it, it was a very no, widely known part of the world that had robbers that would commonly attack. You know, they had a lot of cover in that area, and, and there wasn't, weren't a lot of, it was unpopulated, so there were a lot of ways for people to get attacked. And in this parable, Jesus is teaching that this man, after being robbed and beaten, is, is helpless and, and seemingly hopeless at this point. He's out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's kind of like being on the side of the road in a, on a country road in the middle of West Virginia that only two cars pass a, a day, and, and you're broken down, and you're over there like, oh, you just got beat up and robbed, and your car's... 
doesn't look real good for you. I mean, you know, maybe somebody might not come for 12, 14, 20 hours. Who knows? You may not make it. And that's where he's at right now. He's not in the best of situations. And just when the story seems hopeless, we're introduced to our next character, and this is the priest. He is the second character and the first man with the ability to intervene, the priest. So let's read verse 31, and I'm going to stop mid-sentence. But now by chance, the priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he... I'm going to stop right there. So I'm going to hold off on finishing this because what do you think the priest did? Now, many of us have heard this account, so we kind of know what's coming. But just think about a priest, these people that are listening to Jesus tell this account. I mean, obviously, they're thinking, yeah, and he stopped, and he did this because he's the priest, right? I mean, of course he would do it. He's a holy man, you know, and I love how Jesus says, by chance. Don't you love that? Like, God is sovereign. He knows it's not really by chance. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing there. And we're introduced to this first possible hero the priest. He comes, and he could be the guy that rescues this man. And we're told that he's a priest, which means he's the lineage of Aaron, Moses's brother. He comes from a good line. He's a man of the cloth, as they would call him. This man, of course, would stop by and help this gentleman. He's a holy man. He knows the word of God. He actually knows it intimately, and so he would know this verse in Leviticus 19.34, part of the law. It says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This priest might not know this man, but he's told you should be kind to strangers. You should help them. You should be hospitable. So, of course, he's going to do it, right? No. We read the rest of that, and it says, when he saw him, he what? Passed by on the other side. Don't you love that? Not only did he pass, he didn't even like give a good look. Like he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going over here. I'm going over here now. I don't want to get dirty. And we don't know why. We're not told. Jesus doesn't tell us why this man passes by. A lot of people, um, you know, they, they, they have their ideas, but we understand this is sinful and unmerciful. And our hearts burn within us because of the injustice that this man that should know better, that's not. And, and we don't know whether it was because of cleanliness issues. He was afraid maybe the guy's dead. And if I touch him, I'm going to be unclean for seven days. You know, other commentators say, well, maybe he didn't want to get robbed himself. He's like, well, he might still be back there waiting for somebody else. Or maybe he just don't want to get his hands dirty. He didn't want to get dirty. You know, sometimes you have that. We don't know exactly why he wasn't a good neighbor, but we know that he wasn't. It was clear that he failed this test of love and left the man for dead. But maybe our next character will do better. So now we're at the third character and the second man with the ability to intervene is the Levite. The Levite. We'll read first part of verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him. Look at that. Just like to leave you on the edge of your seat, don't we? So surely this Levite is going to come through. I mean, the priest, you know, really disappointed in that. But then this Levite, all Levites, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites were priests. The, the, the priests were descend, descendants of Aaron and from that lineage, but all the other Levites were non-Aaronic um, uh, people from Levi that were Levites. And they, they were to do liturgical readings and care for the temple. You know, they had a good grasp and under, on the understanding of the law as well. They were a holy people set apart for the temple. And we're told, actually, uh, when he, it says when he came to the place and saw him. So, you know, whereas we saw... The priest doesn't really say that he came to the place at all. Like, he kind of was like, saw him from afar, and he's like, I'm not going anywhere near that. Now, the Levite, he, we almost are told that he comes to the place. It's like he gets a little closer and looks. We're not told that he touched or really stepped in, but maybe he will intervene. He gets a little closer, but what does it say here? After seeing him, he passes again by on the other side. After he sees, he gets a little closer than the priest did, but he still books it along the other side. Wow. 
been pretty depressing. This is a pretty depressing parable so far. We're 0 for 2, and this is like the cream of the crop when we're looking at Israelite piety. Those that know the, 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 uh, the law, they know, supposedly know the Lord. Obviously, we don't think that they probably do well. But this man lay dying, and two chances have come on this country road that nobody ever passes. What are the chances that two people have gone by? And he's 0 for 2. And now we come to our final character we're going to talk about in a second. Let's go ahead and uh, wait one second there. Uh, the listening audience was ready. And who do you think that they were expecting as this third character here? They were expecting the Israelite common person, you know, the working man. Kind of like today, it'd be like the middle class. You know, the, 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 the modern version of this parable would be, you know, the, the, the politician came by and said, no. No, I'm not. Then the billionaire came by. Oh, no, no. But then the coal miner, he came by, and he stopped and helped him. And these people are ready for this victory. Like, you know, yeah, this is going to be a great story. Because the Israelites weren't necessarily pleased with their religious leaders. When you kind of, when you ask the average you know, Israelite, they knew that there was corruption, that their dealings with Rome, that compromised how they did things and took advantage of the people. And so some listening might be on the edge of their seat for this great story about how the cloth was ruined of, of, of uh, Israel and how Jesus was going to fix it. Yeah, I'm sure they were, they were ready for that. But beyond, far beyond their imaginations and what they were considering, we're now introduced to our fourth and final character and the third man with the ability to intervene, and he is a Samaritan. Let's read verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He didn't pass by on the other side like the other ones did, did he? He had compassion. A, a, what a Samaritan. Could you imagine the gasping of the people listening to this account, listening to this parable? Like, you, you, uh, what? A, a Samaritan? The priest and the Levite passed by on the other side, and a Samaritan's going to be the hero of the story, Jesus? What is wrong with you? I mean, we discussed Samaritans a couple of weeks ago. They were hated by the Jews, and they hated the Jews as well. It was a mutual hatred. And the, the Samaritans refused to recognize Jerusalem as a place that they were to worship. They made their own place in Mount Gerizim where they would offer, offer sacrifices. It was well understood that this man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And because he was going from Jerusalem, they hated Jerusalem. They rejected Jerusalem. We saw them reject Jesus because his face was set upon Jer Jerusalem just a couple of weeks ago. And so this man was coming from Jerusalem, most likely, because he had either worshipped or sacrificed or had a feast. And that's more likely because we've had, after he's on his way back, who's come by right after him? The priest and the Levite. So there was probably some type of religious thing that just happened, and now they're heading back. And so if this Samaritan hated the Jews and hated Jerusalem, he'd be the last guy we would think that would stop by and help. Yet we were told that it is this man, the Samaritan, one of compromised Jewish lineage who had intermarried with the Assyrians. It's him that has compassion on the man who lie dying. And let's see what this compassion looks like as we read 34 and 35. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will pay you when I come back. Wow, we're told that he took care of his wounds. He uses wine, which is the antiseptic, to clean them up and oil, which would help with pain control. And then he bandages them up. 
He sets him on his own animal and takes him to an inn. And when he gets there, it says that he gives two denarii, which is equivalent to about two days' wages. Can you imagine two days of your checks just giving to some stranger? And not only any stranger, but your enemy. It's somebody that you really don't like that you saw beat up. This is a significant sum of money and a significant time. Now think about how he would have to put him on his animal, so who doesn't have an animal to ride on now? The Samaritan. So now, now the Samaritan's walking however many miles to get him to this inn. After the, this man's own people, including a priest and a Levite, refuse to help him, but yet it is this man who comes in and shows compassion. Those other men were not willing to show compassion. Some of you will be like, well, I mean, maybe they were compassionate, they just had other things to do, but the Bible's clear that true compassion leads to action. True compassion leads to action. This isn't just a baseless quote for me, this is from James as well. If we look at James 2, 15 through 16, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Compassion leads to action. If we truly have compassion for another, then actions will follow. We might feel sorry for someone or sad about someone's situation, but that's not compassion. True compassion leads to action. Just like true faith produces deeds, as James asserts in that same chapter, true compassion results in works as well. If we are true followers of Christ, we obey the commandments of Christ. We love God and we love others. After completing his parable, we see Jesus' final question and his final charge to the man. Verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus concludes this parable by asking which of these three proved to be a neighbor. The man is asked, well, who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus has just said, the Samaritan, his neighbor was the Jew, his enemy. So pretty much everyone is your neighbor. It seems clear at the law you're still struggling with accepting this parable. He's not a big fan of the way that this went. As he tries to justify himself, he's not a big fan of what Jesus has said here. But he answers rightly. He understands, well, it's the one who showed him mercy. He wasn't, you know, I wouldn't want to say he wasn't dumb enough to say the other thing. I mean, obviously, he wasn't going to say the priest or the Levite was the one who did it. So there's only one choice that made sense. But his answer is really odd and, and awkward in the Greek. Uh, he, he won't even say the term Samaritan, right? He says, the one who showed him mercy, he calls him the one. He won't even refer to him. You can still see that, that problem. But then Jesus even presses in even further, knowing that there's a problem still. This man's still trying to justify himself. He's trying not to agree with what's just been said. And what's he say? He says, go and do likewise. Go and be like the Samaritan. Can you imagine the lawyer? He's probably fuming at this point. Go and be like a Samaritan. How do you like that? I mean, they hated the Samaritans. They were, they, they were the, the sellouts. They were the, the inbred. They, 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 were, they, went with, they were inbred with, with Assyrians, pagans. But Jesus wants this man to know that he cannot fulfill the law in and of himself. He falls short even of the Samaritan of the parable. This lawyer is no better than him. Actually, he's worse. Because that man actually had compassion for people. 
But this is the beauty of the gospel. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we truly can love God and others the way we're called to love God and others. So we come to a close. I pray that this account has struck you to the core. And I pray that it's not just about the lawyer. I pray it's not just about the priest or the Levite. Because we ourselves can be like them. We can be guilty of virtue signaling. We can be guilty of saying, yeah, that's right. This is what I would do. This is, And yeah, we may say we love God, but do we live like it? Do we attend church regularly? Do we tithe? Do we read the Bible? Do we pray regularly? Do we make God a priority in our lives? Or do we just live our lives trying to sprinkle God whenever he's convenient for us? And do we love others? Do we, do we truly serve others? Do we, do we have compassion on people to the point where we would sacrifice our own money, our own time, our own talents, our own treasures to make somebody else's life better? We may say we love people, but is it followed by action? My friends, we cannot do this well without the Holy Spirit because we are naturally lovers of who? Ourselves. That, that's what comes naturally to us is to love ourselves, to be concerned about our own affairs, not the affairs of God and certainly not the affairs of others. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, he will equip us and empower us to do what he's called us to do, to love God first and others second instead of ourselves. Churches, Jesus has just charged us. You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And may we go throughout today being doers. Let us pray. That song.